You're listening to WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio. Buildings on air with Kiefer Dunn on Lumpen Radio. Hello, hello. Uh, welcome to the first Buildings on Air of 2018. It's a pleasure to be back here in the studio at Lumpen Radio with uh, super producer Jamie Trecker talking about architecture and uh, frequently, often, politics, um, as we do here, Buildings on Air, first Saturdays of the month, every month. Um, and we've got a great show lined up for you. So uh, first up, we'll be talking with Phil Bernstein um, about issues of architecture and technology and economy. Um Phil's one of the smartest people I know on, on these issues and really looking forward to talking with him. Then um, we'll be doing our regular mailbag segment. Regular mailbaggers and Louie and Craig Reschke are out of town, but we have some uh, able and willing replacements um, from neighbor from the neighborhood. Some, some more Bridgeport architecture folks, um, Nick Secchi and uh, uh, Emily Hanley, and they'll be in the studio Um uh, around uh, 2.40 or so. Um, and then uh, after that, we'll be airing a talk courtesy of our friends at Mass Context um, on John Portman, um, who recently passed. Um, very important architect, very controversial architect. Um, we'll, we'll chat about his legacy um, and, and then air that talk, which is very, very good. Um, so uh, without further ado, um, Phil, are you there? Yeah, I'm here, Kiefer. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, so um, I'm I'm really looking forward to our conversation, and and I was I was thinking I, I, on on my way in the to the station uh, this afternoon, um, um, I was reading this article on um, uh, the Apple Store in Chicago, um, yeah. which has had some some problems um, with freezing, and some of the windows have cracked, and and there's dangerous icicles, and um, I, I was thinking of our conversation that we're about to have because it transpired that uh, it was a software problem. That caused all of it um, because oh, really? I hadn't heard that. Yeah, I, I, to describe that. I thought it was really interesting. And b- basically, they have some sort of um, uh, heating element in the roof that's programmed, and it had been programmed improperly. Uh, um, so it wasn't on the production side, but um, you know, cer- cer- <laughs> certainly, um, um, uh, I, I don't know. Interesting. Uh, it speaks to the amount that our buildings and uh, architectural processes are reliant on uh, on, on, on new technology and, and computation. Um, and, and I'm really excited to talk with you about that. Um, for those of you who don't know, um, maybe you can introduce yourself. Tell us what you do, um, um, uh, things you've written, um, etc. Yeah, sure. Well, um, I've uh, been an architect for a long time. Decided I was going to become an architect when I was 10, um, went to college, studied architecture, went to grad school, got a master's degree, practiced for about 20 years. Most of my practice career was with um, the firm that's now called Pelly Clark Pelly Architects. Back then it was Caesar Pelly and Associates. Um, and uh, during the time that I was practicing, I kind of, I was trained as a designer, but I sort of transitioned my career. I got a lot more interested in process issues, so I found myself working more on project management and firm management questions. And then about 17 years ago, I was recruited away by a headhunter to join the technology company Autodesk, and I was a vice president there for 16 years where I worked on a lot of stuff, primarily overall uh, technology strategy, trying to 
get our company to align its work with what was happening in the profession. Um, I was running the business unit when we made the transition from CAD to building information modeling. Uh, my team created that term, building information modeling, to describe what we were trying to accomplish with um, Revit. And I worked on those problems um, until last year. And about a year ago, I left Autodesk. And um, I've been teaching since uh, the late 80s. I teach professional practice at the Yale School of Architecture. And I've turned my attention to uh, mostly teaching and writing now and kind of looking to see what's going to happen next. Yeah. And I, yeah, the, you're, you've uh, written a couple books with, with Peggy Deemer, who's been on the show also. Uh, right. Building in the Future, Recasting Labor and Architecture, and BIM and Academia. Right. Um, and uh, that, that was sort of my, my, my first exposure to, to your thinking. And, and now uh, we work together occasionally since you're on the board of the Architecture Lobby. <laughs> right. so and, there, you and I have had a lot of conversations over the past. I'm uh, working on a manuscript right now, first one I've ever worked on without Peggy. It's a little bit terrifying. <laughs> um, a book that's coming out that's going to be published by Burkhauser, we hope, later this year, where I'm looking at, um, I'm speculating a little bit about changes in the agency of the architect in a world where sort of technology and the systems of delivery are evolving and how architects yeah. might change their roles and responsibilities. Yeah. So um, I've got a bunch of questions for you, but maybe we'll start off with, a, with, a, with an easy one. Um, and I'm sure even our, our non-architecture audience and, and our architectural audience um, um, maybe have, have, have heard of building information modeling or can kind of intuit what it yeah, is. Sure. Um, but, but maybe, especially seeing as you were uh, important to developing the term in the first place, um, could you tell us what it is and, 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 and how you see its potentials? Well, so back in the, well, look, for, prior to, say, the first couple of years of the 21st century, and I mean for 2,000 years before that, what architects largely did to explain buildings to the people that either had to build them or use them was make two-dimensional drawings. And two-dimensional drawings like floor plans or three-dimensional uh, sketches that show a building in context were really a way of abstracting the idea of a building in graphic form so you could explain a very big, complex thing using a relatively efficient technique of, technique of drawing lines and arcs and circles on a piece of paper. And what happened in the last decade of the 20th century is that most architects stopped doing a lot of that work using pencils and rulers and measuring devices, and they started using computers to make those same kind of drawings. So most people will be familiar with AutoCAD, which was it's just a CAD program that Autodesk created and, um, and produced and evolved. And a lot of the day-to-day -day drawing work in the architecture world was done, uh, and even today is done, using these kinds of CAD programs. But in a lot of other industries, particularly in things like uh, car manufacturing, shipbuilding, um, aircraft design, those industries that had a lot more money invested a lot of money in software and began using computers that made three-dimensional models that were behaviorally correct instead of drawings to make those things. Hmm. And so what building information modeling was was an idea that says instead of just making a drawing that's an abstraction of a building, 
let's make a high-resolution, three-dimensional model, digital model of that building, and then we'll, get, we'll, we'll extract the drawings from that database like a report. So instead of drawing the thing and having the real three-dimensional conception of it just be in your head as the architect, the computer manages a high-resolution, three-dimensional model of the building, which creates all kinds of interesting opportunities because it's a much more, it's a, there's a lot more information there. It's a, lot, it's right. a sort of big data idea finally coming to the building industry. Yeah, that's a great definition. And I, I think, too, it's it's interesting how this kind of has transformed the nature of, of architectural work. And I think one of the things that, that um, you and I uh, discuss a lot in, in, in your writing as well, um, and I, you've talked about it in your uh, column for Architects Newspaper, and sort of like how how this uh, architects are and aren't sort of embracing technology, right? Yeah. Like, and, and so I, I'm I'm curious if you could give us maybe like an, an overview of some of those problematics of, of how the technology is changing the way that architects work um, and how that impacts um, the buildings themselves and and the industry um, and and sort of and and maybe it's this is this is the question and it's not answerable, but but kind of who who are all these sort of developments serving or who would they ideally serve and who are they serving now? Um, sort of setting the table, it's seeing what you pick up there. Yeah, well, it's a, I mean, that's a, it's a very complex question that you've asked. And I think the issue for architects and also in the building industry in general is what, what do we, how do we translate the potential of tools into doing our work better? I mean, at, at the end of the day, that's really the question, right? Right, and the the building industry in general, and I think you know, architects is part of that, have always been challenged by a couple of things that make adopting uh, new innovations, particularly sort of disruptive ideas, like for example, building information modeling, really challenging. And the and and, and the two that I've found it during my career to be most. Um, that kind of create the most resistance are first, you know, project the biorhythm of building projects is really slow. You know, it's yeah. not. It's it takes a long time to design and build a building. Even a fast one takes two or three years. So the rhythm of the industry is very slow. And when you have a when you want to try to understand and adopt a new technology, figuring out where to plug that thing in so you don't mess up all your current work right. is a you know it's a big question. But the other, the other question, and this is, there have been a number of papers written about this, is the building, because the building industry is characterized by such low profit margins that architects and engineers and, and builders operate in an economic context where the most important thing is to spend as little money as possible. Yeah. One of the outcomes of that is that you don't have a lot of extra money lying around to experiment with new technologies or train people in new technologies and so the um, your flexibility to try to experiment with something new is extremely limited. You know, this is why a lot of these disruptive technologies emerge from businesses that are way, 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 way more profitable. Right. I mean, you know, as, you know, Google's way ahead right now on the whole machine learning thing because they have so much money. Right. You know, they can spend, spend, and spend, and spend until they figure it out. Your average architecture firm can't take a third of the firm and have them play around with a new technology for a year until they figured it out. It would sink the business. 
Yeah. And this would kind of disappear. Right. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's an interesting thing, right? There's so much... Um, it's it's a it's a an industry with a lot of inertia, right? Um, and and it makes it really hard to sort of move the ball in in any kind of different yeah. direction. And yeah. because of that, it always feels like we're twenty or thirty years behind the times. And, and you know, I think one of the the social impacts of that is that it makes it really really hard for us to um, be relevant to the people that are ultimately using the buildings or or, or even clients, etc. And so yeah, I, I, I think. Really true. Yeah. Both, I think, and I think that's true in terms of both kind of the way we work and the way we, you know, create results. Like, you know, the the um, clients these days, the people who hire architects, these are all people who grew up using video games and going to, you know, watching lots of special effects at the movies and sitting at home in front of their eighty-inch widescreen television sets, <laughs> and they have a very attuned view of the visual world, and particularly the digital visual world, and then you roll in there and try to explain a building from a floor plan, and they can't read floor plans, nor should they have to. (laughs) Floor plans are, you know, you and I speak this special encoded language that we were trained to speak in architecture school. You know, floor plans and elevations and sections, and, you know, we're perfectly comfortable with that. My mom, however, is not, nor should she be. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I, and I think I think it, it raises another interesting question because you know I'm I, I always joke that I'm I'm a I'm a luddite and a technology skeptic, but but I, I'm 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 all for it and 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 I think but a, a lot of my skepticism really is sort of this question of uh, uh, who if 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 you are creating these tools right yeah. then like uh they there's social values that are baked into them yeah. and like and i and i i want uh, us as a, as a profession and, and really just everyone as people to be technology literate enough to sort of um understand that uh that that yeah. that, that those things aren't super objective and also that that way um we can understand sort of who the technology is helping and, and, and who it's not, because it's not a kind of uh, 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 just go faster button, right? <laughs> no, that's exactly right. And, you know, you and I have talked about this idea in the context of tools like uh, mo- these modeling tools that we're talking about and yeah. how much of the software engineering company's values and thinking about how things, how the world works are kind of baked into those tools, which is absolutely true. Yeah. You know, as you, you've heard Peggy and me talk about this, but I've always argued that uh, technologies that make models of things, like buildings, are, you know, not to get too academical about it, but, you know, they're epistemologies. They're yeah. knowledge structures. You and I, when I say to you as an architect, that's a door, you and I have a certain, you know, idea in our head of what a door is. But when a software engineer has to code a model of a door and all of its behavior and all of its behavior relative to all the things that happen around it, like a wall and a floor and a ceiling, yeah. there's a bunch of stuff that goes in that, and it's, it's completely unavoidable. And, you know, we right now we're worried about whether you and I and, and our modeling program have the same idea of a door. Wait till we get into what Mario Carpo calls the second digital turn, which is when machines learn about things themselves and start doing things on their own it's an exponentially larger problem sure yeah and so how and how do you think um 
I, th- I think one of one of the things that I appreciate most about your writing is you talk about how how we as as architects, uh, um, you know, who are trained to uh, you know serve serve the public, um, it's it's important that we stay sort of relevant for that reason. I think, and and I think your writing talks about how we can uh, better get on top of of these tools. Um, so it's it's the 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 architects with that sort of ethic in mind who are um, um, guiding the process um, rather than. Than, um, developers or, or or people who have who have other interests, right? Uh, right. And so, so I'm curious how you how uh, if you could talk about how you see sort of BIM and, and other technologies um, uh, helping architects uh, regain that kind of position in the process of designing a building, um, and and or also uh, or yeah, that's a good question. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, you you probably read my. Did you read my? Um do you remember that? Um, do you remember that thing that was in the New York Times a couple of months ago about the architect in New York, or he wasn't a real architect? Oh yeah, the guy who went to jail for pretending to be an architect. Yeah, we talked about it on the show very briefly. <laughs> yeah, so this guy in New York, he went to architecture school. He's apparently a perfectly competent guy. He worked for a few years in a firm. Decided he wanted to go out on his own, set up his own firm, started telling people that he was a licensed architect. Had never gotten a license. You know, this guy's the architectural equivalent of the, the guy who was in the, the 18-year-old kid who was in the New York Times this morning who, was, who went around for five years in Florida pretending he was a doctor. <laughs> he told everybody he was a doctor, but he wasn't. So this guy ends up going to jail, not because practicing architecture without a license is a jailable offense, but because he charged his clients tons of money. It, would, it defrauded them, essentially, and he was signing and sealing drawings. So he was saying to the jurisdictional authorities. I am a licensed architect, and I take responsibility for this. So my graduate school classmate and friend Aaron Betsky, who's the dean at the Frank Lloyd Wright School out in Scottsdale, writes this piece in Architect Magazine and kind of goes, who cares? You know, it just doesn't make any difference. This guy's yeah. buildings look perfectly competent, and since having a license to practice architecture doesn't mean that you necessarily are a good designer, what difference does it make? Right. So I wrote this response that basically said, well, Aaron, that's like saying I drove drunk and I didn't hit anybody, so don't charge me with a crime. <laughs> right? It, right? Because at the end of the day, the you know, architects are certified as professional people whose job it is to protect the public's health and safety in the built environment. And, we, and society wants somebody to be responsible for that. To me, the interesting question um, in the context of all this technology, is how does technology make that role more interesting and more important, Mm. particularly in a world where some of the more prosaic stuff that we do as architects, like, you know, make sure that the fire fire sprinklers are in the right place and that the doors swing in the right direction and the exit door has hardware on it, all that stuff's going to get automated. Right. It'll definitely be automated by the end of your career. I don't know if I'll last long enough to see it, but you definitely will. And so in, an, in a world where the technical stuff is automated, what's the definition of the public's welfare in the built environment, and how can architects take charge of that because we think we're responsible for it? Yeah. And therefore, how does technology serve that, in, that end? Right. It's, I think it's really important not to reverse the polarity of the question. It's not what's important about the technology. It's what's important about the work that we do, and how does the technology either help 
or hinder that. Sure. Yeah, and I, I think it's it's really interesting to try to tie the value to the public good. And, and I think that, you know, these technologies enable us to do that in certain ways by, um, you know, now we can apply metrics to things that we couldn't before. And, and again, I think it, that's a process that requires a heck of a lot of skepticism as we go about it. But, but it also seems like the only the only way in which because because now uh, and we talk about this a lot on the show now. Architects charge kind of on the basis of doing all of those prosaic things, right? Like we get, we get, we we make our money by spending time on drawings, right? Right. And and I think um, the the alternate vision that you're proposing is 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 something a little bit different, where we're we're tying our value to how effectively we can serve uh, that yeah. that public good. Yeah, and to me, you know, the the nearer term questions of whether or not the tools are good or bad or whether they do a good job or not, have to be judged in the larger context of whether or not we can use them to do the good things that we want to do mm. as architects. And whether or not the, and there's a, there's a second really important question there that applies not just to technology but to everything contextual about our profession, which is are we, do we as a profession take charge of our own destiny and say, well, you know, if the definition of the public's welfare in the built environment is X, then yeah. we're going to step forward and make that actually happen. Right. Or if the way architects need to function in the economic models of the profession in order to advance the public good is X, then we're going to do that. Or the way we're going to use technology is X, then we're going to do that. Sure. That's the part of the dialogue or the part of the uh, conversation, I guess, in the profession that I just, I think is completely missing. Yeah. Yeah, I'm in my little study here, toiling away on books, but I'm not sure anybody reads them. I mean, I, <laughs> the profession needs to be in a larger dialogue about this yeah. stuff, and it just isn't. Yeah, it's true. And, um, you know, a footnote, one of my favorite things about that, uh, the case of the unlicensed architect in New York was the attorney general's um, uh, investigation into that gentleman right. was was uh, called Operation Art Vandalay. Yeah, that was perfect. <laughs> of course, it's George Costanza's fake architect personality. Which, right. Which, well, uh, and, you know, it, I tell my students that there no, there's no architecture police. <laughs> right. If he hadn't, if he hadn't gone out and presented himself in New Mexico as a licensed architect in New York, and just wasn't thinking about it because he'd gotten a lot away with it for so long. Yeah. And the New Mexican, the New Mexico. Um, Authorities just did a very routine check with the registration board in New York to see if he had a license, and they said we never heard of this guy. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 pretty spooky how it all it all it all comes together. Um, and you know, this is why we have to. Uh, uh, even though the building official is the architect's perennial enemy, um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, you know, guess, it's 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 important that 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 they're there for that kind of thing. <laughs> but this was the other part of Aaron's argument that I was. Um, that I kind of reacted to because of the, yeah. you know, where I operate in this weird intersection of the profession and the academy. Um, the, that, uh, that, that professional certification of an architect somehow doesn't guarantee that you're a competent designer. Right. Um, we can argue whether or not that's true, but what we can argue about is whether or not we control it. Sure. You know, we as architects control all of these mechanisms. We control the licensure mechanisms. We control the academic institutions, we control the accreditation of those institutions. 
So the whole discussion feels like a giant circular firing squad to me. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. A a poetic and accurate image, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, friend of the show, Skylar Moran, who's also in the architecture lobby, uh, he he often poses the question, I think, in a really interesting way, which is um, if we if we didn't have a license, um, would we still be relevant, right? Like what, 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 how do we pin, if we're talking about reconceptualizing our value, part of it almost means that we have to start to conceptualize what the, what descaling means and, and right. on all of these other issues. Absolutely. And I can tell you as somebody who sat across the table from clients and contractors for 20 years before I, you know, became a vendor, a software vendor, if, ar- if architects didn't have to be at the table, nine times out of ten, we would not be at the table. Right. Yeah. It's just a. It's just an yeah. artifact of the neoliberal economy. Yeah. Which is which is I think one of the things that that sort of scares me most. If if we really are sort of aiming to realign our value in support of the public good. It's yeah. almost like if, if we do think about it in sort of like crass supply and demand terms, I, I, I almost wonder what the demand is for the public good, <laughs> right? And yeah. uh, and I and I think I think that's that's one of the things that definitely sort of keeps me up at night. Well, you know, I think it's kind of a good news bad news thing. You know, I mean, in thinking about it, um, the bad news is that if a lot of the things that architects do can be automated, and the public seems to have a pretty high tolerance for drab, uninspired, not very good buildings, just drive up and down the commercial strip anywhere to see that, then it's possible that automation could de-skill us out of existence. However, the other dimension to this is that, you know, through ideas like uh, social media or crowdsourcing or the ability of the more general public, or in our case, the users of our buildings, to have a voice in not just the design, but how they feel about the outcome. Right. You know, that's a harnessable opportunity to say, you know, what if one of the measures of a successful building is how happy people are actually using it? Sure, yeah. And that there are, I mean, if you want to make a market-based argument, that there are rewards and punishments for creating buildings that people are not happy with. Right. Yes, yeah. this is not a well worked out argument, but the the basic the basic components of that are there, and you can see them in um, you can see them in kind of in more responsible corporate environments. For example, I mean, back when I was in the corporate world, part of my bonus was a function of the employee satisfaction scores of our organization. Yeah, if my organization wasn't happy, they docked my pay. <laughs> so it yeah. was. You know, I was I had a I had the financial interest in keeping my employee my employees in a in a, in a place where they were happy with what they were doing. Yeah, so yeah. It's a weird equation, but yeah. And I think I, I sort of posed this question to you um, when we were talking before the show because um, I, I think one of the interesting things that I've noticed, and I think a, a lot of young architects and listeners to the show, um, um, you know, we we uh, our entire career has been defined by working in Revit, right? So yeah. the the Gosh. Only, yeah, I can't yeah. believe. 
that, but I guess you're right. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, I think, you know, we did a little bit of CAD in school and, and you know, maybe some small offices that people have gone to work for, um, yeah. especially ones who sort of do, you know, more boutique-tailored projects where they yeah, need yeah. I mean, really. it, I mean, I understand. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, in my generation, it was AutoCAD. If you weren't AutoCAD capable, you couldn't get a job. Yeah. Now you have to be Revit capable. Yeah. Okay? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and. It's 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 an interesting thing because you know in in our kind of conversations and just thinking about technology, I I, I very clearly see the path of of Revit as a software that helps us do all of these amazing things, a, a, a road that leads from Revit to um, you know reconceptualizing our value in this way. Yeah. But you know, so many times you go into the office and, and Revit is basically just ends up in, in other BIM softwares that you know take your pick. Um, but they they end up kind of just being tools that let us do the same old stuff yeah, twice as fast. Yeah, you're exactly right. Yeah. Uh, and it's you know I I don't in looking back over the course of the work that I did, you know, w- when we made the massive strategic decision to get off the AutoCAD road and and pave a new road, you know, along the building information modeling. Yeah. I, you know, my idea as the as both an architect and a leader of the organization was to create a tool that empowered architects to operate in a different fashion. But it kind of it and so. As you can imagine, when I hear you talk about it in this way, it kind of, you know, it makes tears well up in my <laughs> eyes a little bit. But um, it, it, in a way, it's emblematic of the larger dilemma of the profession, which is, yeah. you know, you give, um, you know, I, 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 I'm just reminded of um, early in my career, when I first started working for Caesar, we were doing a project and um, we were meeting with the client and the, it was a, an academic institution, and the professors were trying to really, um, they had some very functional ideas about what they wanted, and they didn't yeah. really want to talk about anything else. And the clients turned to them. The client, who was the vice president of the university, turned to this group of professors and said, you know, I just hired this world-class design firm to give you a new building. I did not buy you a Mercedes-Benz so you could use it as a delivery truck. <laughs> right. <laughs> and there's a kind of analog here, which is yeah. they, the, the, the power of these technologies is tremendous, but if we just exploit them to be more productive yeah. and not get anywhere else, it's really it's, it's a failure of nerve of the profession itself. Sure. And I think that the we have a kind of architects have this very passive attitude about technology which is tell me what i can do with this right right as opposed to oh my god i've got i used to have a spear and now i have a nuclear weapon <laughs> so right. i use this nuclear weapon to go hunt birds with it you know <laughs> right <laughs> and, and it goes back to what we were talking about earlier which is the, the this particularly when it comes to these questions of the, the what architects can do with technology that's beyond just yeah. uh, form making, there's no you know there's nobody working on this as you know as a professional platform. Sure, right? It's not coming out of the schools, that's for sure. Yeah, right. So who's actually working on this? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question, and uh, you know I think 
I think I, at least I, I sort of hope that the this you know young generation of architects who is technology literate, you know, they're digital natives. When they go into to workplaces, and if they're kind of equipped with the agency, can really like you know point point to their technology illiterate bosses and say we're not using this to its full potential. And right. that, that that might be one way in which uh, uh, we can kind of get out of this. And and but but unless that conversation is happening collectively and on a large scale then it doesn't yeah yeah it's got to i mean there has to be a kind of bottom-up effort from the grassroots of the studio yeah. where younger architects who really understand what the possibilities are say yeah. why aren't we doing this or right. why aren't we doing that yeah but you know my students who have access to you know all these incredible toys there are you know we have 40 3d printers in the studio and you know, a, a sub-basement full of computer-controlled fabrication equipment, and then they get to an office, and there's one laser cutter, you know? Right. There's this big kind of disconnect. So there needs to be some top-down discussion, sure. too, and it's not just, have you decided you can use this particular piece of technology to do X? Yeah. I mean, the stuff I'm interested in is, what does, how does the technology change the shape of the playing field and how do we as architects get on that field and run some different plays? Sure. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, we've got just a couple minutes left here. And um, I, I think, yeah, I think that's all That's all like, the way that we need to be thinking about it. Um, I, and I, I, I'm, I, I'm, I am really generally sort of op- optimistic that, that we will get there. Um, although, you know, I, 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 one of the issues that I think I've seen is that because we live in a society where technology is kind of always there, um, but in, in in very literal ways, but also yeah, as a yeah, but yeah. but also as a kind of ideology, right? Like I, yeah. you know, I, I wonder, I wonder if the sort of promise of the distant future and uh, the the power that we see technology having with artificial intelligence and all of those other things is sort of polluting the way that we think about it now. Um, it, it, you know, to put it in in your earlier metaphor, we we all already think that we're driving the Mercedes Benz, and so and and there's only Mercedes Benzes, so who cares whether you're using it as a delivery truck or not, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm curious how you think about uh, that or, well, or argue uh, it. Here's what I here. I don't know. I, I mean, you know, I have to. Um, I've already disclosed my clear, um, you know, kind of conflict of interest here, since I have a vested interest in seeing that this, all these technologies that we worked on, make some sense. But here's a way. Here's a way. There's two ways to think about this. Either as a profession, we are driven by the outside forces of technology providers who are simply going to give us tools that we slavishly use to our detriment. Right. Right, or we get ourselves well enough organized as a profession that we try to influence how those kinds of technologies are going to change yeah. the way that we work. Yeah, and you know, I, you know, I, in the same way that we're, you know, the building information modeling has the danger of a building information modeling uh, tool is that it creates a, another army of you know digital automatons who are just cranking out the same stuff. Sure. Um, those the those same digital automatons jobs are in danger right. as this next wave of technology starts to hit us. Right. I don't know if you've seen this book that these two guys from Oxford wrote. Uh, it's, it's a father and son team named Susskind, and they wrote this book called The Future of the Professions. Yes, I have not read it yet. 
Yeah, but they basically argue that in a world where computers can teach themselves to do things, the machine learning algorithms will de-skill professionals in the same way that the Industrial Revolution de-skilled factory workers. Yeah, yeah. And so one of the arguments that they make is, you know, the professions are going to transform dramatically, but it's the obligation of the professions to get out in front of this right. and try to define their future. Yeah. And so, And we as architects are particularly lousy at doing that, yeah. or at least we have been for the last 60 years. Yeah. Well, that, so we got to get out in front of it. We got to get out in front of it. That's a that's a good place to wrap up, Phil. Um, and one one idea I have, just as a closing comment, I think that um, if we started listing as co-authors of our buildings um, uh, all of the people who develop the software, um, oh, yeah. that might be a really good way to solve this problem because we all know that architects don't like sharing credit for their work. Yeah, but, there you go. But, well, I hope your title block has room for the yeah. 200 software engineers that work on Reddit. Yeah, but I often wonder, uh, maybe a conceptual art point, I often wonder, um, you know, they, they, they have a, 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 a legitimate stake to authorship in on in our buildings, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. That's probably the subject of another discussion. Indeed. Well, thanks so much, Phil. It's been awesome to yeah. talk to you. Yeah, my pleasure, Kiefer. Be well and stay warm. Yes. <laughs> All right. Oh, man. Hey, how's it going, guys? What the? Poor oh, gee. Poor John Daly. Oh, my God. See? The... I had to sell the, the floor at Lumpin' like... Radio because we need money so badly. These old oak boards go for a fortune. Jamie, what the hell is... More people need to go to lumpinradio.com and sign up to be a member today. It's super easy and cheap, and you get great rewards. Be a member. Go to lumpinradio.com. Oh, hey, hey, John, watch out! Sorry, John, I had to sell the stairs, too. All right, we are back with Buildings on Air, the show where we talk about architecture and frequently politics, but this segment... Hey, Kiefer... Um, I got some bad news for you. Oh? Well, I've been looking at uh, Instagram uh, from Ann and Craig, and I'm seeing a lot of pictures like sausage and <laughs> big steins of beer. I don't think they're going to make the show today, guy. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know where they are. Uh, yeah, I don't. I, it's it's a it's a provocative, you know, procession of images that Ann's been posting. Yes. You know, um, but yeah, I, I I'm sorry. I I don't know what we're going to do about the mailbag segment. Uh, I think I've got a solution here. Oh, okay. I think uh, we can. We luckily Bridgeport is a neighborhood dense in architectural power couples <laughs> so uh wow, what happened why is that is it the water I, I, m maybe it's the water oh okay probably it's the cheap rent and the nice people <laughs> Could be. but um uh i think uh, our friends here in the studio nick checky emily hanley one of the uh, uh architecture couples of bridgeport great architects better friends <laughs> and my next door neighbors <laughs> and your next door neighbors <laughs> the trifecta are, are here to help us out are you guys uh ready to answer some mailbag questions how are you guys doing yeah let's do it yeah happy to be here cool <laughs> yeah happy to have you on the show um well let's start with some questions i i've got my list here um, and there are many, um, lots of good ones, lots of good questions in the mailbag uh, this month. How many did you make up, Kiefer? Uh, zero. Oh, good. good. I, I <laughs> Believe it or not, I never make up a question. Okay. They're I not, find that difficult to believe. They're, but. Not, <laughs> <laughs> they're not questions that I – they're not always questions that come into us uh, from our solicitations for questions. Ah. Sometimes they are found questions, ah. but they are all authentic questions. 
perhaps rather curated. But, yes, you know, <laughs> exactly. Questions <laughs> nonetheless. Yeah. So um, let's start with. Um, my light switch used to control an outlet, and now it is switched to control a different outlet. How does that happen, and is it dangerous? Probably dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Not sure how that happens, but I would say it's it's definitely a danger to the house. Yeah. I, I think Jamie probably has a little bit to say about that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would say it's strange. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I think they have maybe a bandit electrician um, playing jokes on them in the night. <laughs> well, it, it probably means that you've got a short. It could mean I mean, yeah. that would be my first guess. Yeah. He's got a short and having, you know, Nick's referring to the fact that I had a house fire, which which was not caused <laughs> by faulty electrics. Uh, but, uh, yeah, if if that happens, I think that's something you want to have a qualified electrician, not an 18-year-old kid posing as an electrician <laughs> from our last segment about into. Yes. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. It's dangerous. Get that checked out by a qualified professional. Um, here's a question uh, pertinent to um, our, our frigid winter. Um why can't we use coconut oil to heat our homes? Surely it would be less expensive and less toxic to the environment than fossil fuels. I'm sure there's really no good reason you can't <laughs> use coconut oil to heat your home, other than most most boilers that you'll find aren't configured to burn coconut oil. Yeah, and I don't know how cleanly it burns either, and it's probably... It's not it, that cheap either. Yeah. I, mean, Karis, Karis, I mean, there's many things that are cheaper. Yes. Yeah. I mean, other vegetable oils, too, would be cheaper. But it, think, it melts, though, well, right? And just think, your whole house would just smell like a tropical <laughs> island all the time. Just yeah. pina coladas for January, the whole month. Which I don't know if that's desirable or not. Like, I don't know, I know. if that'd be, like, some sort of slow torture in, like, winter. <laughs> or yeah. if it would be, like, a pleasant reminder of, you know... Harken back to warmer vacations. Yes. Yeah. Like, spend your January dreaming of, you know, of August. Or, like, a Jimmy Buffett kind of thing, which <laughs> yeah. is, like, the other way that could go, too. Yeah, a little bit darker. Yeah. 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 If any of us ever work on a Margaritaville project, we know, like, what our sustainable pitch is going to be. Coconut mm. oil burners. Right. <laughs> yeah, I did actually know an architect that did oh my gosh. resorts, including Jimmy Buffett resorts. <laughs> Yeah, she was a big parrot head. Yeah. Was great. Oh, that, how great for her. Yeah. yeah. Just, oh. uh, talk about strange details. Yeah. I oh, imagine yeah. lots of bamboo and fun things. And <laughs> she said sand control was the worst part of all of it. <laughs> That's like, actually really believe. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. She's like, oh, sand control. Trying to do a hotel where you people are tracking in sand all day. That's really interesting. That's actually really interesting. Yeah. yeah. That's kind of cool. And I guess you would have to, like, you couldn't have any, like, vents or anything on the floor. Like, uh-huh. sand would get in there. Oh, interesting. The more you know. Um, so <laughs> Who knew about Jimmy Buffett? <laughs> yeah. All right. Moving on. Um, uh, can you cover popcorn ceiling with sheetrock slash drywall? Just bought a house, my first, and I'm very nervous about everything because I'm new to this. Entire living room is covered with popcorn ceilings. And I'm learning that if I scraped it and removed it manually, it could contain asbestos. I'm wondering if it's possible to cover up the popcorn ceilings with drywall and paint it afterwards. Um, it's not just the asbestos factor, but the cost of getting asbestos removed um, that I'm concerned with. 
Um, and there was also a related question that maybe about popcorn ceilings. <laughs> Again, it was, uh, should I do a popcorn ceiling for a classic 1980s look or go for something more contemporary? Which, you know, that classic 1980s look. <laughs> Is that back in style now? I don't know. You know, you go to the Chicago Architecture Biennial and you it, wonder, it right? Be, yeah. <laughs> so I, I can answer the second one only because in a previous career before I sat in this station, I actually was a union painter in the 90s. And we had to do um, popcorn ceilings in upstate New York. It was something people asked for. I, I can say that if it was a modern popcorn ceiling, there was no asbestos in it at all. It depends when it was put on because it's it's a basically a powder you put into the paint and you spray it on. It's just a spray adhesion coating. Yeah. Um, and that's what gives it that horrible effect. Yes. You know, it's, not, it's not really a desirable ceiling. But in, in late 80s and 90s, upstate New York, people wanted this. So, But there's there shouldn't be any asbestos in it. And I would – obviously, you'd probably – Depending on when the home was built or, you know, when the home was refinished, if you could find that out, you could find out. Because there wouldn't be asbestos in it past, what, 1965? Certainly not in a spray coating. Yeah. So that I can answer that about the popcorn ceiling. And, and would you do it? In, in my painterly advice, I would say <laughs> please don't. <laughs> but, you know, it's up to you guys. Yeah. On the second topic, there's another texture that's also quite 80s. And it's uh, you could ask your painter for a heavy knockdown. Um, and that'll sort of get you that that '80s look, maybe the Miami Beach vibe kind of thing going on. Yeah, is that the one where it's like this, like the textured? What is the a heavy knockdown? They spray on a, a really heavy texture, like a sprayed texture, yeah. almost how you would do a popcorn, and then hit it with a, a texture knife ah, I just see. to bring the peaks off of it. Gotcha. But, um, and it's it's much more attractive, and you even still see it done now sometimes. Yeah, mm. interesting. Well, and I I suppose if there were asbestos and you were concerned about that, it would be no problem to cover it up. I think that's even what they tell us to do on like the architect's exam, right? That is, yeah. yeah. You could just do some furring strips and put a new new layer of drywall. Yeah. Tape it and paint it. Easy. Yeah. There you go. If you do go that route, I would suggest um, really looking at your existing ceiling for any holes or anything where bugs, rodents, anything can get in between those two yeah. layers of your ceiling because <laughs> that's that's pretty much everyone's yeah. worst nightmare is I've put in a new ceiling and there's something in between oh, my two ceilings. Yes. Um, As, asbestos and uh, dead bugs, yeah. That's yeah. truly yeah. grim. <laughs> so, yeah, I would, I would invest in a can of that spray foam and oh. uh, really go to town with any voids you find. Yeah. Um, if you do choose to put in a new essentially a new ceiling yeah. below your existing ceiling. Sensible yeah. advice. Very good. I love the mailbag. It's so fun. And you learn a thing. Um, so here's here's more questions. Um, this one is a question um, uh, from my friend Brianna out in San Francisco, the Bay Area, who asks a very Bay Area theme question. Uh, how will the gig economy and remote workers uh, increasing uh, remote workers increasing in number impact architecture? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that's a great question. In my professional life, I do mostly kind of office, corporate kind of work. And I'd say this is really a huge game changer in terms of the way we're seeing offices and even how we're relegating space within our offices. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you're seeing even not on a tenant basis, but on a building basis, a lot of building owners going to giving more space back to amenity floors, um, building in whole areas of the building that's just for people um, to kind of work remotely. Yeah. Um, you'll get big lounges, um, 
things kind of crazy if you think about it, but like full bars, um, <laughs> game rooms, all sorts of things that are really just sort of tenant amenities. So yeah. I, I think across the board from, you know, for facility management standpoint, all the way to building owners, it's really changing how we're looking at how do we use our office space and what does working look like? Yeah. The other, that was really a two-parter because the other part is the gig economy. Sure. And that's talking about people who don't even have an office or, right. or work in some industry where they don't need an office. Yeah. Um, and, you know, most of the gig economy is very tenuous also. So if you did need a meeting space or an office, you're going to somewhere like uh, a co-working space. Yeah. Uh, which are often much more expensive by the square foot or, or time increment that you pay for. Um, which, you know, serves to even, like, further marginalize these people who are sure. working in gig jobs. Yeah, and I think it's it's interesting, the thing about amenities, because you do look at a place like WeWork, one of these co-working spaces, and they've got, like, ping-pong tables and everything else and, like, beer taps. And, like, yeah, this, the stark contrast between, like, be working in the gig economy in that, in that sort of setting um, and, like, the amenities that are on offer to sort of lure you in there is, like, always I find it deeply unsettling. You're like, I don't have health insurance but I've got an awesome ping pong table <laughs> where, yeah. I, where I work. It's All the beer I can drink. <laughs> yeah, right, which you will need, uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it probably goes with the fact that you don't have the health insurance. You better yeah. have the beer. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. 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 Um, we also had an, another another question uh, from friend of the show, Skylar, who um, I who who – Asked a great question. It's one of the tropes of the mailbag that we talk a lot about air conditioning units <laughs> for yeah. some reason. No. <laughs> Is she yeah. asking if we can put an air conditioner in the middle of the room? And yeah. It'll, it'll, uh... Well, so, so yeah, because we, we've answered that question. So frequent listeners to the show um, will know, will be familiar. But, it, but if you're not, um, there's a, a, a question about if you put an air conditioner in the middle of the room, will it work? And the answer is no, because it works like a heat sponge and sort of sponges up the heat in the room and puts it on the outside. It's like in, in science terms, it's a heat pump. Um, um, but Skylar asked if we could do it in reverse for the winter. If you were able to flip around your window air conditioning unit, would you be able to use it to heat the apartment, presuming that you could still control it and also trap the condensation? I think so. Yeah. I, I don't think it's the best idea. Yeah. I can see a lot going wrong with that. I could. It's also just supremely inefficient. <laughs> like there's, yeah, yeah. there's got to be a better way than flipping. Yeah, it is. Yeah. A, it is all about the heat differential, though. Right. It is. Yeah. I think at the there's also if if it, if the sponge analogy holds, and I think it does, then you're not able to sponge a lot of heat out from outside when it's like 10 degrees. Yes. Which yeah. might be why it would be at a, 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 a minimum a very inefficient idea. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, yes. The- theoretically, the answer is yes. Yeah. But you wouldn't do it because also the way that a window air conditioner is set up, it's using a coolant. And it's much more efficient to well, I mean, at least right now, it's much more efficient to to burn something to get the heat off of it, rather than to try to yeah. cool and extract heat from cold air, yeah. and then transfer that uh, to another location. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd say let's go back to the coconut oil burning. <laughs> yeah, right. about flipping it yeah, backwards, like look in your kitchen first. Yeah, do you have oils? Like yes, light some candles would probably be about as good. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, yeah. Do not ever use your oven, though. We can recommend that. Or your that. stove. Or your stove. Yeah. yeah. yeah don't Bad do that. ideas. Mess. Yeah, especially the poor people in the Bronx last week. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah. that's how that building went up. Yeah. yeah you don't want to do that. Um, um, yeah, try the try the flipping around the window unit first <laughs> before you try that. If yeah, yeah I suppose I guess. <laughs> I yeah, hmm. yeah. I guess it, it in theory it should work, but I don't know if it's actually going to work. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean it require it, testing. We could we could try it. We could, try it. we could try it. We'll try it. I'll, I'll, on, buildings on air experiment hour. Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll flip around one of the window units at the, yeah. the co-prosperity sphere, and I'll get back to you yeah. next show. We can I'll pretend what, you, you and I can do a, a, a sub yeah. a sub segment uh, where we're basically right. myth busting. That's right. We'll get <laughs> Hannah up on the ladder. We'll flip that around. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Cool. All right. Moving on to another question. Um, let's see here. Um, some bricks are cracked at the corner or bottom of my house. Does this indicate anything or is it just normal wear and tear? It, it could indicate more serious problems, but it's likely that it's just normal wear and tear. Um, it really depends how old your building is. And if you notice other signs of cracking across the, the facade of the building that the damage is on. Yeah. Um, you can look for telltale signs like stair step cracks at the corner of windows um, and those will indicate that there's more movement happening across the building. But if it's at the corner of the building by a sidewalk, it's likely someone just ran into it and <laughs> damaged a brick. Yeah. <laughs> For some reason, the image that came to my mind of someone running into it was like someone on a Razor scooter, like hitting the corner oh, yeah. of the building. What is yeah. the corner of a building if not like the ankle of the building? And I just think of Razor scooters hitting ankles and the, the pain there. <laughs> the menace of the Razor scooter yeah. to the built environment. <laughs> yeah. Well, th- yeah, that's good, good, good advice. I and I, yeah, I would say too. It's you might just need some tuck pointing. Um, if if maybe it's a spot by a uh, roof drain or where there's water collecting, um, and you live in a cold climate, it could be that water is sort of seeping in between the bricks and freezing, and that'll cause some issues too. But it's pretty easy to fix with um, some new mortar. Yeah, yeah tuck pointing is actually fairly. You can do it fairly easily yourself. Yeah. With mm-hmm. uh, a YouTube tutorial and yeah. very simple tools. You really just need a – if you want to do it the right way, you need an angle grinder just to grind out the old mortar and you need a bag of mortar and just mix it up and slop it in. You do want to make sure that you're getting the right kind of mortar. I I can never remember which one is which, but there's two kinds of mortar and you want to be sure that you're matching the stuff that's there. but yeah, it's expa- what is it, hydraulic expansions one, and I can never remember what the other one is. It's just like regular lime mortar and cement mortar. And I, I, I don't know. Yeah. 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 We uh, just spec it. <laughs> yeah. Others take, take dyes and other additives differently. Yeah. <laughs> we just say, put mortar here, please, and mm-hmm. let a contractor figure it out. Please pay us money to be architects. <laughs> and if the SCC is listening, that was a joke. I was not actually selling my architecture services. Thank you. Um, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> um, hiding money in the house. Is hiding money under the carpet a good way of keeping it concealed from burglars? Any other recommendations? I figured we as architects would really know some good nooks and crannies that other people might not be aware of. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't maybe... <laughs> Where do you it, hide money uh, in your house? <laughs> Please tell the world. <laughs> I maybe wouldn't hide it under the carpet, uh, but there's plenty of great architectural hiding spots. Um, you know, if you just think about uh, all the spaces between things and inside of yeah. things and, and maybe like assemblies of items that make up your architecture, Yeah. Um, the spaces that go between those are really 
you know, usually empty or have little nooks and crannies in them to hide stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd really also say that, you know, our experience of the built world is very much based on what we can see and touch easily. Like there are a lot of hiding spaces where it's just, you know, out of eye range or above what you would normally grab. Yeah. Um, Some of the best hiding places are just mildly out of the way. Yeah. Not even, not even really out of the way, just mildly. Like in a in a in an electric J box like a junction box maybe or what if you have like a hollow pin door hinge maybe in there. Well, how much money are we are we talking about? I <laughs> yeah. mean, you know, it, this, it seems to be cash, right? Uh-huh. We're talking about cash. So there, it, cash is bulky, cash. right? Yeah, so if you're talking be. about cash is bulky, most not that I know anything about this, <laughs> but but most people who work in cash businesses when they hide it, they they tend to hide it somewhere on their property, not necessarily in their house. Mm-hmm. I, I know a certain, um, I don't know if he's still alive anymore, but a, a former bar owner in the city um, paid me for a gig once with bills that he'd put in his gravity well outside, sealed in plastic, and they were like bills from like the 1940s. I mean, he'd been clearly <laughs> collecting a lot of cash for quite a while. Um, but the, the other thing is, well, like I said, is cash is bulky. If you've got yeah. a lot of cash, you, you need a sizable place to put it, Yeah. right? So... Yeah. If somebody's really determined to get into your house and really take the time to ransack it, and you've got a, you got to just think about it. If you've got a, a stack, I'm making kind of the generic hand sign for lots of cash. Um, <laughs> you're gonna probably need to have a place that's built to hold it. You'd probably be better off putting it in a safe, candidly. Um, if I mean, really, that, that's the truth. Yeah. I mean, you, you probably go to Costco and get a safe or whatever, because at the end of the day. If you're giving a, I mean, I guess it's if it's a crime of opportunity and people are just coming in and looking to take stuff, you know, if you've got it a little bit of cash concealed in the kitchen or something like that, sure. it's probably unlikely that they're going to find it. Um, but if you're a target and you've got a lot of cash, say you happen to run a legal marijuana business or whatever, and you can't use a bank, which right. is actually a real use case right now, okay. and you've got a, an enormous amount of cash, you, you probably are not going to just want to stick it in a, a junction box or, or something like that because it won't fit. I guess is my point. Yeah. yeah. So you probably need to have some sort of built environment and a safe, and the safe is secured. And at the end of the day, then all you're trying to do is give enough time for somebody to discover this and stop the crime and process. Because, it, you know, it, it, that's that's basically what you're trying to do. Yeah. You're trying to add time. Yeah. yeah. This was sort of discussed in uh, Joff Mana's Burglar's Guide to the yeah. City. Yeah. Which was a really good book. Yeah, I really it, enjoyed yeah. that book. <laughs> it was a, an interesting read. But, yeah, he touches on the, the idea that if you're a targeted uh, crime – um, really all you're trying to do is like disincentivize that by yeah. pri- providing some type of barrier. Yeah. yeah. Um, but if they really want it, they're going to yeah. get it. It was, yeah, the book was totally fascinating too. Cause it talked about the ways in which burglars just look at the city and the built environment and architecture totally differently because like every little ledge is like, you know, a place to like crawl up the side of a building on or like what have you. And he sort of lists all of those things. It was really, really good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. By the way, we should remind folks, you're listening to Buildings on Air on WLPNLP Chicago, 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio. Thank you, Jamie. Yeah, I think uh, this is a great opportunity for listeners to um, tweet where 
where they think they a good a good hiding spot for money is. This this really does sound like I'm trying to figure out where everyone's hiding their money, and I'm definitely not. I'm just legitimately curious where all of the weird nooks and crannies are in buildings that I can't think of at the moment. You're just looking for <laughs> advice for yourself. That's right. Yeah. Yes. Well, you're trying to move beyond your freezer, aren't you? Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. One of the Sick of sleeping on a lumpy mattress. I don't have that much money. I don't, my mattress is not lumpy. <laughs> <laughs> don't you have like one of those foam mattresses, like a purple or Casper or something? Yeah, no, I think it's from Ikea, and it rolls oh, out, right. and it's bad. Yeah, it's <laughs> I know one of the the burglars that was busted, and I read about it a while ago. He said that the places that the burglars didn't generally look was in the kitchen. They didn't go through food cans and stuff like that because hmm. few people take the time, for example, to wrap a bunch of cash and stick it in a jar of peanut butter and put it back in uh-huh. because you, most people don't do that. Yes. So kitchens generally are not a targeted area for, for burglars. Interesting. Though it seems like the FBI goes straight to the freezer usually <laughs> when they're investigating <laughs> the, politicians. The, 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 freezer's, the freezer's a different thing, though, because that's that's not concealing it like in food. For, I mean, a lot of stuff is concealed. Contraband is concealed like in coffee and mm, shipped yeah. and stuff like that. Mm. Um, and that's, you know, that's just basic drug trafficking. I mean, that's how people get stuff across borders. You hide in other stuff. That that doesn't really generally occur to the average homeowner to like you know stick it in a jar of coconut oil yeah. that you may be using to heat your home. Um, you know, coconut oil. Yes. Yeah. And if you're you're really dedicated, you have a lot of cash, and you maybe have a popcorn ceiling you want to cover up. <laughs> I would put it up there between the furring strips it's and build the, over. Yeah, it. it's yeah. the perfect space for that gap. There we go. <laughs> We're coming full circle here on the mailbag. It's great. <laughs> um, all right. Well, here, here I have a, more questions still. Um, so let's see. Um, uh, what is a benefit of using an insulated duct attic hose? You know, a hose with a layer of fiberglass around it. I mean, insulation is great. It helps <laughs> us be a little bit more efficient. It's better than a non-insulated one. Uh, and sound control, too, I think. Yeah. A little bit. Um, You're sound. probably going to pay more for it. Yes. Yeah, for, <laughs> for that little bit of extra insulation, but it'll be quieter, yeah. and your system will be more efficient. There you go. All right. That's an easy one. Knock that one out of the park. Um, here's one. Job question. If I wanted to be an interior designer and an interior decorator, would I get the annual salary for both jobs? I, I don't make up these questions. Uh, <laughs> No. No, you, you most likely wouldn't. Um, you would most likely only get the salary of one or the other. Yes. Um, Unless you're moonlighting with one and then they were at literally two different jobs. But I, it did lead me to a question of I realize I don't actually know the proper difference between an interior designer and an interior decorator. One charges you um, but, a, another zero on the end of the <laughs> you get, and the other doesn't. Yeah, I think that question gets down to a lot of um, health, life, and safety issues. Yeah. You know, a, a decorator is very concerned with finishes, propping, accessories, uh, whereas an interior designer is much more interested in how spaces work together. Sure. Um, they're looking at more code requirements for interior spaces. Um, they're also looking you know, a little bit more deeply at um, how the spaces perform sure. as a whole. 
um, and as, you know, more of a larger system rather than, you know, squiggly sticks in vases. <laughs> <laughs> Which, yeah. by the way, everyone loves. Are you, yeah, ma- are you making fun of our squiggly sticks? <laughs> no. We have some, too. <laughs> yeah. Everybody's got a set. <laughs> it's the best-selling product at Ikea, squiggly sticks. That's amazing. Yeah. That's, that's totally wild. <laughs> it's one of the top ten. Yeah. Did you know, I hope people have known, well, if you come by the Co-Prosperity Sphere, you can see there are squiggly sticks that we stuck into the dirt have actually started to sprout leaves. Oh, oh Which fantastic. is bizarre. You um, reanimated them. Yeah. So eco-friendly. Yeah. yeah. It's puzzling. <laughs> the seconds of dead air were us all staring out the window of this, uh, admiring the, the leaves yeah. on the squiggly sticks. <laughs> well... Um, here's you mentioned earlier this kind of idea that uh, uh, a lot of our understanding of the built environment is sort of very like surface level and sort of what you mm-hmm. see is what you get. And there's a question where I think that might be at play. I'm renovating my attic right now and half the room has no floor, just insulation. How much would it cost to put in secure floors? It's hard to understand what's going on, but I think that they're just going up into their attic and they see only a sea of insulation. But this is Steve from Bernice's, right? No. (laughs) (laughs) Although he does often have uh, attic and insulation issues. Yes. I'm sure this is Steve. Uh, Yes. I've I've won. uh, I've I've earned many free drinks at Bernice's um, on on the occasion of helping Steve with his attic insulation. On this renovation issue. The never ending (laughs) attic renovation. Yeah. All right, Steve. So I'm picturing the attic from this question. Yeah. You go up there, there's the. The structure supporting the ceiling, yes. right? And there's some plywood on top of it. And between the, the two by fours or two by sixes is some bat insulation yes. laid out. So um, it probably depends how old the house is and what is that structure, yeah. whether you should even be walking on it, probably. <laughs> um, and yeah. then if you have you know just a few sheets of plywood laid down and the structure is adequate, you would probably just need to, to pick that up do some secure plywood, nail down to the floor, and then cover it with, like, a, a nice finished floor material. Yeah. How much that costs is anybody's guess. Sure. I mean, depends on what floor you want. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've definitely gone into apartments where it is just the subfloor. And yeah. that's fairly cost effective. Um, but, you know, sky's the limit. You could get budget carpet. You could go with more of a engineered flooring. Yeah, um, that's a little bit more time intensive, labor intensive, a little bit more money. Um, yeah, you've got a whole range of options. You could put in marble floors and it would be like the Taj Mahal, <laughs> uh, but maybe not what you're hoping for. Yeah, yeah. The, the attic thing is interesting because you know we forget too, especially when you have insulation on the attic floor. The attic is really. Ha- it's there to provide ventilation, like an important role in the mechanical and ventilation and temperature regulation of the building, more so than it is for you to like store stuff. So like, um, you know, when you're doing those attic renovations, you want to be very careful about, you know, you might have even open eaves or, um, you know, ventilation places that you're not aware of. And you might have to insulate under the roof, but it really is sort of um, redesigning a building enclosure inside of another building enclosure. It's it's a. Uh, you can't just lay down the, the floor um, um, and have it be okay. And um, 
But although if you do, I highly recommend marble. Yeah, marble. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> if you're going to do it, let's make it fancy. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I think uh, that's a good place for us to end, a, a good motto for buildings on air to, to take up in the right. future. If you're going to do it, let's make it fancy. Um, and uh, Nick, Emily, thank you so much for being ringers um, and, and your, your excellent answers to um, – Maybe not quite as <laughs> so excellent questions <laughs> as uh, tends to be the case with our mailbags, but we have fun here. Um, Good luck with that attic, Steve. Yes. <laughs> Thanks for having us, yeah. Keeper. Yeah, yeah it's thank been great. you. It's the most magical time of the year. Late November. Oh, the lump in membership drive. That does not sound super magical. Listen here, Jess. The sounds of this very radio station can be life-changing. Why, before they started telling my life story, I was nothing but a low-down bum with a crush on an IDOT worker. Uh, TMI, Kyle. Tim? All right. Lumpin' Radio's programming makes you laugh. It makes you cry. Oh, it's heartwarming. And and supporting them is cheaper than a bowl of jambalaya. When is the last time you purchased a meal? That's not the point. Go to lumpinradio.com and sign up now. I promise you I won't regret it. You mean they won't regret it. How do, how do I know what they're going to regret, Jess? I regret this already. Welcome back to Buildings on Air. Um, so... We have a special treat for you guys on the show to, to close out this week or this month's show. Um, so if you are an architect and you were reading the news in the last week, um, you might have seen um, that architect John Portman passed away um, at the age of 93. Um, he lived a, 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 long, a long and prosperous and, and, and good life. Um, and we wanted to air a talk um, that Charles Rice gave uh, 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 at a mass context lecture, mass context um, is an excellent publication um, um, and uh, curatorial group and and uh, good architecture people who work in the city of Chicago. Um, and they, they organized this talk, which was at the Society of Architecture Historians, uh, Charlie Pesky House um, in Chicago here. Um, and, and the talk goes over John Portman's life and his work. Um, and I thought it was really interesting, um, uh, a really good talk. And um, I hope that everyone enjoys it. Um, m- you know, my relationship with John Portman is is, is an interesting one um, because I kind of got into architecture when I was in high school. I, I ended up with a copy of Rem Kulas's book, SML XL, where he has this section on Atlanta. And I grew up in Atlanta. And um, I had never heard anyone talk about Atlanta or the built environment or the city in the way that uh, uh, Rem Koolhaas was talking about Atlanta. And and his interest in Atlanta was almost entirely oriented around John Portman and his work and the way that his buildings kind of construct these amazing atrium spaces. If you've ever been to a hotel that has a massive, beautiful atrium in it, um, it very well is, uh, uh, could be a John Portman building. Uh, It's at the very least influenced by John Portman. Um, but anyway, uh, John Portman's very, a uh, very near and dear to my heart and, um, his architecture has a complicated legacy. Um, and the talk gets into that. So without further ado, um, um, we'll kick it over there and you can follow along with the visuals in this talk. If you, um, go to mass Context's website and Google John Portman. Uh, thank you, Ika, very much. I'm delighted to be here uh, and for the invitation from Ika and, and Mass Context. I'm delighted to be here in this building. It's always exciting to talk in a significant piece of architecture. And I'd like to thank Society of Architectural Historians because in 2012, 
Uh, they directly supported my work. I received a, a Senior Scholars Award to uh, attend the Detroit Annual Meeting to present some initial work which I'd done on John Portman, so thank you to SAH. And thank you also to the Graham Foundation who directly supported the book uh, through a publication support grant. Um, so I feel like I've brought the work home uh, exactly to this place, so it's fantastic to be able to, to talk here in Chicago. So I'll begin with an observation. Um, what I'll do in this lecture is take you through a bit of a tour through the book, if you like. Um, but beginning with the observation uh, that's sort of front and centre of my mind, really, is how can something like the work of John Portman be both affecting and banal? Uh, banal because we all know these places now so well. Whenever I talk about atrium hotels, everyone has an atrium hotel story. I'm sure you all do. Uh, and in some way, we're, they're banal because we're trained in their effects. We know how to be in and read these spaces. But I think it's also affecting because we might suspect that these places are, are some sort of oversight of a vision of the city, a vision which never came to pass really, but strangely also is uh, ever-present uh, around us all the time. So there's something about also the relationship between the specific, the specific nature of John Portman's work and the generic and the banal. So with that thought, I want to frame uh, what I'll say tonight uh, in relation to two concerns. Uh, I will take you through some aspects that I think are very, very specific to the emergence of this work. Uh, how these projects first appeared in the context uh, of urban planning and the structuring of governance, especially in Atlanta, and that a highly specific set of circumstances. But also to reflect op uh, upon um, what the proliferation of the Atrium Hotel might mean, uh, how something so specific very quickly became very, very generic. So with that, I'll dive in. So, on the cover of the 1979 Museum of Modern Art exhibition catalogue, Transformations in Modern Architecture, the towers of John Portman's Detroit Renaissance Centre rise from the mist surrounding early morning commuter trains, as if beckoning the city's workforce towards a gleaming new future. The effect of Timothy Hursley's photograph is filmic. The towers appear in the middle distance, somewhat miraculously, not unlike the first appearance of the Tower of Babel in Metropolis or the Tyrell Corporation in Blade Runner. The image crystallises the fate of Detroit as capital of the 20th century. The progress of the modern industrial economy running on rails here meets its end. There is no mediation. The trains disappear as if right into the core of Renaissance Centre, swallowed whole by a building over which the light of a new day gently breaks. And the building certainly swallowed things whole. Inside the MoMA catalogue, Renaissance Centre's vast atrium is revealed in a spectacular photograph by Yukio Futagawa. The cylindrical central tower defines the circularity of all elements in the atrium. From circular walkways descend spiral stairs to pod-like seating bays. Within this curvilinear world, a veritable garden of earthly delights flourishes an Eden outside of which it would seem nothing else need exist. This is a garden city, its circularity making real the ideal diagram of Ebenezer Howard's utopian projections. The concrete columns supporting the structure appear like towers themselves, arising out of the canopy of green to form a skyline all of their own. 
The atrium of Detroit's Renaissance Centre is Atlanta interiorised. The lush canopy and skyline of the Sunbelt City are transported in miniature but fully formed to the downtown of the Rust Belt. The commission for Renaissance Centre was backed by Henry Ford Jr. thanks to the commercial success of Portman's Peachtree Centre in Atlanta, a multi-block mixed-use development. There, in 1967, the same year as the race riots which spurred the Detroit Commission, Portman completed the Hyatt Regency Hotel, its 22-storey atrium redefining the architectural, developmental and experiential possibilities of downtown, and in the process becoming his architectural signature. By the mid-1970s, Portman atriums were on the drawing board or in construction as part of urban developments in San Francisco, Los Angeles, Fort Worth, New York, Brussels and Cairo. Portman's 1976 book, The Architect as Developer, co-authored with architect and urban designer Jonathan Barnett, gave its title to what was making him so successful in that period, the operational structure that would link architecture and property development. As it emerged via Portman and soon proliferated through the work of countless architectural firms in cities across the globe, the atrium became the characteristic architectural space of the period. This perhaps merited its presence on the cover of the Transformations Catalogue, its curator Arthur Drexler declaring that Portman had constructed, quote, among the few buildings of the last two decades that can claim to have a genuine popular following. As a survey of the 1960s and 70s, Drexler's exhibition was heavily criticised for its lack of a clear position about, what the, about the quality of work produced in that period. Popularity belied a kind of existential, existential crisis in the discipline. Defending his show from critics, Drexler perhaps dug a deeper hole for himself, stating that the exhibition was meant to be, quote, an analogue of the real world, bewildering, profuse, overloaded, contradictory, inconsistent, largely mediocre, the devaluation of once lofty and supposedly profound ideas, end of quote. But buried in that curatorial method, curatorial method was a theory of architecture which precisely captured the mood of the time. Drexler assembled around 400 projects, each one represented by one or two photographs. There were no drawings or other visual material on show. These were presented as a kind of enveloping wall surface where each image could only be seen in a comparative context. Now, rather than select work on the basis of exemplarity, Drexler was looking to trace tendencies in order to come to an understanding of the proliferation of architectural ideas through built work. As he wrote in the accompanying catalogue, quote, it is reasonable to suppose that there will have been produced during the last 20 years, not 10 or 50, but 400 or even 4,000 buildings that illuminate the exchange of architectural ideas through their primary statement, their adaption to uh, normative use, their hold on our sensibilities, and their rapid devaluation. It is also reasonable to expect that among 400 buildings will be most of the major achievements of the period." End of quote. Drexler's curatorial method infuriated architects, yet it revealed the sense of a broader modus operandi at work in the profession, that of absorbing workable solutions and proliferating them. He made this clear in a statement that linked a layperson's visual analysis to the training of architects. 
Again, a quote from Drexler. No one studying painting is taught to paint Picassos, nor are imitation Picassos highly regarded. But architectural ideas are models. Part of their value is that they can be imitated, varied, improved. No matter how strongly the modern movement stressed the idea of approaching each problem without prior commitments, as if the wheel had to be perpetually reinvented, any successful solution to an architectural problem embodies a previous success and is itself successful in that it can be imitated. Now that imitation is not as focused on the work of three or four great pioneering figures, the movement of ideas is less from father to son and more brother to brother. Competition and the ambivalence architects feel about originality make it awkward to discuss an individual's use of a shared idea, but not necessarily the limitations of the idea itself." End of quote. Now, this is certainly not the didacticism that accompanied the International Style Exhibition. Yet, while Henry Russell Hitchcock and Philip Johnson's ruling values of volume, regularity, and the avoidance of ornament were replaced in Drexler's work by a more dizzying array of categories in the Transformations Exhibition, the underlying argument about the proliferation of these categories, or, uh, the, the prolifer proliferation that these categories organised, indicated both the success and failure of the earlier professional didacticism. In 1932, architects were directed to copy the work of European modernists, yet the codification and internationalisation of that style led to what Drexler called its devaluation. One can't be taught to paint Picassos. Indeed, Drexler wryly included in the Transformations catalogue essay Mises' entirely unironic description of beginning a workday in 1960, and I imagine that he's beginning his workday in 1960 here in Chicago. He wrote, I get up, I sit on the bed, I think, what the hell went wrong? We showed them what to do. But if architecture or perhaps its museological definition was going through a crisis, the profession of interior design was flourishing, unburdened by the cultural expectations a museum show might impose. The profession was becoming self-aware about its impact at the scale of the city, and it was Portman's work which, which enabled this awareness. Now, looking across the professional magazine interiors in the 1960s and 70s, designs which cross scales and practices became a distinct feature. In this period, interiors devoted more page space to Portman's design than any magazine in architecture or design. Yet it was not just the projects which were seen as significant. The scope of Portman's architectural and business interests enabled interiors to project the profession's urban role. And Atlanta, which has always remained Portman's base, played a major part in this. As editor of interiors, Olga Gweft claimed the city, quote, offers a unique case study in instant environmental planning by teams of developers and architects. Gweft was one of the earliest reviewers of Peachtree Centre, reading it in terms of its urban interior interconnection and its nested scales of enclosure, from large-scale atrium to the intimacy of a booth in a bar or a restaurant. She was prescient in her analysis. The Hyatt Regency Atlanta had opened across from the building whose business continues to anchor Peachtree Centre, Merchandise Mart, now known as America's Mart, a wholesale trade and exhibition space which now contains around 7.7 .7 million square, square feet of commercial space. The presence of the Mart, 
together with the Interiors Department of Rich's Department Store, the commercial furniture business Ivan Allen Company, uh, and Peachtree Purchasing, which was one of the arms of Portman's architecture and development firm, placed the professional services of contract interiors at the heart of the city's economic development. As mayor of Atlanta, Ivan Allen addressed the 38th National Conference of the American Institute of Interior Designers, held at the Hyatt Regency in 1969. He was addressing an audience whose business he knew well, in a location which had literally and massively expanded the profile and role of interior design. Now Portman would go on to develop two further atrium hotels, office buildings and parking, as well as commercial, entertainment and leisure space, forming what he called a coordinate unit, a linking of complementary functions within a walkable distance of about seven to eight minutes. At present, Peachtree Centre stretches over 17 city blocks and has continually acted as a laboratory for Portman's practice of architecture and development as it has expanded globally. Conventionally, Peachtree Centre's pervasive interiority has been considered as an assault on the street. And I'll just flip back and forward between those images of the kind of exterior envelopes. And here we have uh, the Hyatt Regency. Uh, later, the uh, Peachtree Plaza Hotel. Uh, the Marriott, whose atrium is 47 storeys tall. Uh, America's Mart around here. Uh, office tower, more office towers here. Uh, all designed and developed by Portman since 1961. And here we have uh, the in mapping of the atriums, the 47 storeys here, the Hyatt here, and various connecting walkways in green, they indicate uh, sky bridges above the street uh, and all of its interconnection. Conventionally, Peachtree Centre's pervasive interiority has been considered as an assault on the street. The creation of a privatised autonomous architecture which produces what Trevor Body called in the early 1990s the analogous city. As for so many writers on the North American city since the publication in 1961, of Jane Jacobs' The Death and Life of Great American Cities, the street came sharply into focus in the way Body made his argument. He writes, quote, precisely because downtown streets are the last preserve of something approaching a mixing of all sectors of society, their replacement by the sealed realm overhead and underground has enormous implications for all aspects of political life, end of quote. Body's essay was published in Michael Sorkin's well-known anthology, Variations on a Theme Park which presented a scathing attack on the new kind of urbanism that had emerged in American cities after the end of urban renewal. It was a call to order for those who believed that the fundamental spatial values of the city were being destroyed by ersatz equivalents. Most threatened was public space itself and the democratic ideals it supported. What it demanded was a return to core values, essences of the urban such as the street and the square. Yet, in his review of the anthology, political theorist Paul Hurst argued that, quote, these changes in the urban fabric are merely one in a series of factors rendering the polit political ideal of a primary self-governing community whose citizens interact in a common public space deeply problematic. One cannot respond to such changes nostalgically by seeking to rebuild the classical city or restore the democratic polis. Along with that of Rosalind Deutsch, 
Hearst's critique advanced the idea that urban form and politics are inextricably linked, but that the nature of that relation is not given in advance. The changes Hearst signalled had to do with the emergence of, a, of what he calls, quote, a series of loci of public and private governance that intersect in many complex ways. He argued that the emergence of social differentiation and segregation in cities had overwhelmed the political capacity of idealised urban spaces, such as the street and the square, to represent and to allow transparent social and political interaction. Hearst saw the necessity to understand, quote, the new political structures and new spatial correlates that attend the changing landscape of the city in order that a sharper sense of architectural and urban action might be developed in the context of continued upheaval. To translate this idea into my uh, context this evening, while a skywalk in Peachtree Centre might not be a space of political representation and participation, it did become a correlate of the political structure operational in Atlanta. Now, in order to develop this idea, we need to consider not just Portman's Peachtree Centre, but the structures of urban governance and development that surrounded it. And just for a bit of context, this is Atlanta, uh, downtown Atlanta, circa 1976, and the same year that Portman published his book, The Architect as Developer. And here is Peachtree Centre. You'll also note uh, what is another mixed-use development by another developer. This is the Omni Centre, which is now the home to CNN. And this is another hotel office complex called uh, Atlanta Center by another developer. But Portman's buildings are sitting here. So despite widespread perceptions of Atlanta's success in the 1960s, it was described, self-described as the city too busy to hate, it had its share of urban problems that have come to characterize the North American urban crisis of the 1960s and 70s. At this time, central Atlanta was beset by social, racial, and spatial fracturing brought on by urban renewal and its aftermath. And just also to give you a bit more context, you'll see that the uh, highway that skirts around the city, actually in a kind of U-shape, uh, in terms of urban renewal and the development of the highway network, this was an incredibly contentious, as it was for many American cities at the time, very contentious incursion into the fabric of Atlanta uh, and caused a lot of the kind of spatial fracturing uh, and also social and racial fracturing that Atlanta experienced at this time. So although Atlanta was beset by these problems, it also demonstrates how structures of urban governance emerged and became consolidated amid urban upheaval. To the extent that problems, the problems of Atlanta's urban growth could be identified and argued over, political alliances across public, private and racial lines would consolidate in a way that was conscious of and to an extent responsive to the changing demography and geography of the city. So I want to look a little bit in some detail uh, at the context of the way in which development occurred in Atlanta in the late 60s and early 1970s. So Portman was not simply the private developer of Peachtree Centre. He was a significant player in a publicly funded project known as the Central Area Study of 1969 to 71, a joint initiative between the City of Atlanta Department of Planning and a business leaders forum known as Central Atlanta Progress, or CAP, the study, undertaken while Portman was president of CAP, 
was part funded by a grant from the US Department of Transportation's Urban Mass Transportation Administration. Calling upon Atlantis historical founding as a transportation terminus, the main aim of the study was to promote increased and improved access to and circulation with the central area, while discouraging through movement of traffic not destined for downtown. Vehicular, pedestrian and rapid transit movements were considered in an integrated way. A car intercept strategy was proposed, whereby parking reservoirs would allow commuters to change to other transportation modes and would offer them easy access to downtown through a proposed elevated people mover system. Where possible, underutilised streets would be converted to pedestrian use. These proposals, or this proposal rather, had much in common with the contemporaneous downtown improvements in many North American cities and the explicit influence of Victor Gruen's 1956 plan, A Greater Fort Worth Tomorrow, seen here, uh, can be traced. Now, apart from road reorganisation, access and circulation was to be organised through a new rapid transit system known as MARTA. The story of MARTA's inception is key and says much about what the geographer Charles Ruthizer has called Atlanta's racialised geography. But what I want to focus on is the relation between the eight urban design proposals included as part of the central area study and what eventually occurred with Portman's development of Peachtree Centre. The most significant project envisioned within the study, seen here, a Peachtree Mall as it was known, illustrates the complex interrelations between private and public interests as they took shape around Atlanta's downtown development into the 1970s. Peachtree Street, which is the spine shown here, is the central spine of downtown Atlanta, and the Central Area Study accorded it a historic role as a national symbol of Atlanta. The reorganisation of traffic flow in the central area was designed to take pressure off Peachtree Street as a major artery, freeing it up to perform its symbolic role. Yet the most significant stretch where the street followed a ridge line through the central area was to be radically transformed. Peachtree Mall would enact the latest ideas in transportation-led urban design thinking, fundamentally altering the character of the central area and positioning it as the hub of an expanding metropolis. The project proposed separating movement paths into four distinct layers. The existing street level of Peachtree would be pedestrianised, with its vehicular traffic running uh, through a cutting one level below grade, the level below this would be the concourse for a MARTA station and provide direct access to and from adjacent properties and space for retail activities. Below this would run the MARTA line and above the four layer separation would run a people mover. So we have metro, uh, streets that have been cut through, uh, strangely mixed with pedestrian activity. Um, Peachtree Street again in a below grade cut through here, pedestrian mall levels here, and then the people mover, which is not particularly clear, but running through at this level. And one thing that's interesting to note, oops, uh, I'll go back one slide. Okay, so this was the proposal in the central area study, the close up there of the four layer separation, and published not uh, too far away in time were Portman's own proposals for his Peachtree Centre development, the existing buildings of which abutted Peachtree Street. 
And these proposals added complexity to the public-private partnership that had produced the vision we've just discussed. Now, Portman had concluded his term as CAP president in 1971, the year of the release of the Central Area Study Report. And early in 1972, he publicised his projections for Peachtree Centre on the front page of the Atlanta Journal and Constitution. Now, despite the integrated connections promised in the Peachtree Mall project, the projects he envisaged for Peachtree Centre maintained their own above-grade connections via skybridges. And indeed, the rendering for the Central Area Study in the Central Area Study report showing this grade separation includes way above the street the existing skybridge linking the top of the merchandise mart with the office block across the street. So that skybridge there. Portman's proposed extension of the Skybridge network might have seemed antagonistic towards what Peachtree Mall proposed and what the Central Area Study more broadly were trying to achieve, that is to position Peachtree Street as the pedestrian connector of downtown. So the supposed conflict is between the connection and integration shown here and in some ways the autonomy and segregation shown here. However, I would argue that such a move to maintain the above street connectors, the sky bridges, had a certain symbiotic logic with regards to the aims of what was meant to be going on down here on street level. In particular, it had to do with maintaining what political scientist Clarence Stone refers to as investor prerogative, an exercising of private rights in the sphere of publicly supported development in this case through the purchasing of air rights to construct the sky bridges that linked Peachtree Centre into a coordinate unit, enabling its continued integrated interior expansion. Now in Stone's terms, investor prerogative developed within and also regulated the climate of business unity and cooperation in Atlanta. CAP, representing a business elite, had developed its own action orientation in partnership with elected government, with a focus on to quote Clarence Stone, on getting government support for initiatives that maintain wide investor prerogative and in that way further business unity, end quote. The Central Area Study was one such initiative. In order to promote unity within this governing coalition, CAP did not oppose the interests of Portman as one of their own in being able to construct the skywalks, even though CAP's plans through the Peachtree Mall project and other projects developed through the Central Area Study, focused on the street and its pedestrian capacity as the integrating urban element of downtown. For the city of Atlanta, the encouragement of private investment in downtown was primarily an issue of securing a stable and viable tax base in the context of ever-increasing suburbanization. But further than this, the development of skywalks became productive for CAP and the city's joint efforts. As Stone argues, quote, rather than limiting the construction of bridges as a way of encouraging street level pedestrian traffic, the city has embarked upon various publicly funded efforts to make the street level of the business district more appealing. That is, instead of supporting a restriction on one of their own, business executives back public projects to meet the problem. In this way, Portman's skywalks weren't simply concessions to private interest. They actually supported unity in urban governance 
in the subsequent promotion of projects that relied on public engagement and advocacy and that stabilized the operation of Atlanta's governing coalition. In this light, Peachtree Mall, and we see another rendering it from the Central Area Study Report here, this project can be seen as a response to a key component of Portman's spatial reasoning, which had to do with deploying above-grade pedestrian movement between a range of functions, a strategy at the core of Peachtree Centre's design logic from the beginning. Peachtree Mall extended the idea of separating pedestrians from traffic, but it did so as an explicit reinvigoration of the idea of a vibrant street level, responding to the lifting, off, lifting up of pedestrians above it. These street improvements proposed via Peachtree Mall became about a public recognition of the need for this improvement in political rather than strictly urban terms. CAP needed to be seen as proactive in attempting to implement this opportunity that was provided not so much by the construction of a metro as by the very nature of the politico-economic reality of downtown development and the reality and leverage that a piece of infrastructure such as a skywalk has in that process. In characterising what he terms as, quote, partnership New South style, Stone argues that, quote, race consciousness, metropolitan fragmentation and economic growth provide the context for Atlanta's public-private partnership. One could even say that the interrelation among these factors is the partnership's main concern, end of quote. Here, the instrumental function of the central area study should be recognised. Its success didn't hinge on whether its major projects were built as projected, and as you might gather, Peachtree Mall, depicted here, never happened. Rather, its role was political in its organisation of public-private collaboration, and therefore degrees of stability and the visibility of cooperation in governance in the context of an urban environment that remained perpetually problematic. Urban action occurred through and took as its interest the management of inherent urban instability rather than the fixing of urban problems. There is a further transformation in train here. The interior logic of Portman's complexes was itself, of course, a pedestrian one. If we look across their development in his oeuvre, we see that in many ways the contingent piecemeal development of Peachtree Centre, being reliant on a somewhat haphazard deployment of skybridges, was the exception. The Detroit Renaissance Centre of 1977 is perhaps a key project in the way it instantiated a fully pedestrianised interior urbanism. It is Peachtree Centre all of a piece, its network of concourses matching the street grid's iconic urbanism. And San Francisco's Embarcadero Centre, constructed between 1973 and 1989, takes this in a different direction, lowering the difference between inside and outside, yet through certain material continuities, constructing the entire complex, even down to adjacent existing sky, uh, sidewalks, as interior. It is perhaps this scheme that is closest to what Gruen wanted to achieve for Fort Worth. I want to conclude uh, by shifting to situating this emerging, what I call interior urbanism, against a larger background of concern regarding the street's relation to architecture in this period. So I've discussed the way in which 
The street and the skywalk are not necessarily the opposite of each other. They have a certain symbiotic logic relative to how the city is governed in a specific context and that the role of an urban design proposition such as we saw in the central area study is primarily political rather than, as it were, developmental. So the street and the, the skywalk, the street and the atrium, I would argue in this period, have a broader kind of relationship to each other, which I think critiques that kind of return to the street uh, that we see in the sort of 1990s discourse. So around the time Portman's practice reached its apogee in the mid-1970s, Kenneth Frampton recognised that the architectural project could provide the conditions for maintaining the street. In his contribution to the edited volume On Streets, Frampton commented that an existential need for something that may be identified as a street seems to persist, end of quote. He saw that in the Golden Lane project of 1952, Allison and Peter Smithson had, quote, to quote Frampton, formulated for the first time in modern theory the idea of the generic street, that is, of a street that may not be recognisable as, as such, but would have, nonetheless, many of the psychosocial attributes of the traditional street, end of quote. For the Smithsons, the street in the sky attempted spatially to situate its domestic subjects within a megastructural scale in order to mark out a kind of locational identity. However, Frampton saw Golden Lane and its built derivatives as failures in that they did not recognise the inherent characteristics of the street, even in its generic condition. These characteristics were its double-sidedness and its connection to the ground. For Frampton, a whole range of projects in the megastructural idiom also failed, largely due to a surfeit of pedestrian possibility as against programmed location-enhancing content. One target here was the Smithson's Hopstart uh, Berlin proposal of 1958. Frampton's call then was for, quote, the possibility of the limited intervention of the generic street or enclave, end quote. To this end, he analysed a suite of projects that attempted this by incorporating street forms into the architectural project. Among them were A.J. Diamond and Barton Meyer's Students' Union Housing in Edmonton in 1973, a raised linear arcade incorporating shops and housing with lateral links to other university functions. Uh, Kandilis, Shozik and Woods' plan for the University of Bochum in 1962, where branching pedestrian arcades linked functions across the site. And their scheme for Frankfurt Romerberg of 1963, and these were among other schemes that Frampton uh, commented on at the time in the mid-70s. Yet, as he somewhat fatalistically surmised in the preamble to his analysis of the projects, quoting Frampton again, thus while we cannot hope to revoke the loss of the tra traditional street at a global level, we may hope still to maintain within limits those physical continuities that are capable of, of sustaining something of its living social history, end of quote. At a new level in their psychosocio-political symbiosis, and as we saw in the political reality of Atlanta's development, street and interior become inseparable. The street was only claimable as inherently urban in the extent to which it was threatened by the urban infrastructure of the interior. Yet its recreation was also cycled through that infrastructure. The street and street life could be both inside and outside, often in the same project, and thus in the city as a whole. 
Looking back on the streets research project to which uh, Frampton contributed, his idea of preserving a living history struck me with a kind of experiential force when I first spent time in Portman's atriums. When I began this project in 2009, I toured through the US and stayed in or visited almost all of Portman's hotels, uh, though interestingly not the Chicago Hyatt O'Hare, which I'm yet to visit. Uh, so my first port of call was the Los Angeles Bonaventure Hotel. Departing as I did at that time from Sydney on a Thursday afternoon, I arrived in Los Angeles on a Thursday morning. Crossing the international dateline, I had gone back in time. Waiting for my room to be prepared, I wander the atrium in a strange lacunary time, not quite sure when I was. In this state, the Bonaventure atrium appeared as a strangely muted world of bubbling pools, neat foliage and discreet neon signs advertising an outmoded array of shops and eating places. As postmodern hyperspace, as Frederick Jameson would famously call it, However, as postmodern hyperspace, however, it felt distinctly of the 1970s. I half expected young men and women dressed in flimsy robes to gather along the terraces for Carousel, the ritual of sacrifice in Michael Anderson's 1976 film Logan's Run, much of which was filmed in the Great Hall of the Dallas Apparel Mart, which was developed by Portman's business partner in the 1970s, the Texan developer Trammell Crowe. So there, there is uh, Logan's Run. So in their relaxed cavorting, these young people appeared to possess the correctly evolved sensoria for successfully navigating these spaces. Living in a domed city, they had no concept of an outside at all. By the nature of their function and the business imperatives which enable them to continue to function, the buildings have been regularly renovated and updated. This has largely meant stripping the atrium spaces of much of the decor and detail which in photographs published on their completion, presented them as quintessentially of the moment. No more aviary or mature trees at the Atlanta Hyatt, no more conversation pit in the San Francisco Hyatt, no more indoor lake at the Peachtree Plaza Hotel or the Renaissance Center, and much less cascading foliage in general. I found in my travels an architecture hollowed out, holding few of the surprises, bewilderments or pleasures that colored their reception. What remained, however, was the robustness of the geometry carried in the building's literal concrete form and structure. And this is the uh, Atlanta Marriott with uh, about a 15-storey segment of its 47-storey atrium. Now, this outmoded effect has recently been highlighted in a book on Portman uh, from the Harvard GSD which includes newly commissioned photographs by Ewan Barn. And um, this is it, James, in flashiness and size that somewhat outweighs my uh, rather <laughs> slim tone. Now, it is perhaps the com uh, commissioning of Barn more so than the GSD publication itself, which points to a particular kind of recuperation of Portman. While Barn is noted for the inclusion of people and everyday activity in his photography, it is perhaps a comparative reading which best situates what his photographs do. So I'm going to show you some of Ewan Barn's initial photographs and then some photographs published in the mid-1970s in Portman's book, The Architect as Developer, really to conclude on a set of speculations about the recuperation of Portman, of the atrium, its uh, genericness, its ubiquity, 
and in a sense what had been proposed at the time for the way in which it might encourage a kind of social life in the city. So these are very quickly um, images taken by me of uh, Yvonne Barnes' photographs in the uh, GSD publication. Now, one other significant aspect of this publication is a studio and, and work from a studio run by Preston Scott Cohen. And I'll show you a little bit of that at the end. So it's clear then that Portman's work uh, is positioned as a kind of available material, providing proof, if it were needed, of Arthur Drexler's proliferation theory of architecture after modernism, the theory, in a sense, that underpinned the show Transformations in Modern Architecture. Here, proliferation looks like a lo-fi developer-led version of morphogenesis. We'll see that a little bit more in Preston Scott Cohen's student work. And I think this is true to the influence of the work. As we see from Barnes' photographs, these interior urban spaces usurping the street, even as it has become urban design's attribute du jour, these have become the contemporary city. And Cohen's studio situates elements of what he calls Portmanian architecture within the city as the site of their self-generation, producing a city from the atrium's own logic. Now, however we may judge this work, I think there is an historiographical lesson evident in it, one which I only began to articulate in my own book, yet one which might resolve the tension with which I began between the spectacular and the banal, or the highly specific and the more generic. One of my struggles was in trying to justify my study uh, as being solely focused on Portman. Was I trying to trace his influence or his intentions? Clearly not. But it did recognise in his work what I would call a point of emergence of a specific spatial transformation that has been incredibly impactful on the way in which cities have developed. Its specificity, its spectacular nature, belongs to the way in which uh, it was claimed by Portman and its banality attests to the way in which it has always remained in excess of such an authorial claim. In its Ur form, the atrium's basic geometry was a nascent code. Its everyday manifestation and its manifestation everywhere recognised in the rather insufficient description banal. This is not to be celebrated or derided, but I would argue reasoned. I have attempted this through various approaches, some of which have been given in snapshot form this evening. And I think we can also see a kind of reasoning in the student work, which, sorry, my slides are slightly out of order. I'll show you again in a moment. And I can also see this reasoning, I think, in Barnes' photographs. What is clear is that taking the atrium seriously necessitates a new account of how the contemporary city came to be. It is perhaps no coincidence that the last attempts at a kind of synthetic, synthetic theory of the city, and here I would name Collage City, Delirious New York, and Learning from Las Vegas, were published when the atrium was genuinely contemporary. To historicise it now in the mode of a design studio, as we'll see with Cohen's work, and a photographic survey we see here with Barnes' photographs, or indeed an academic monograph such as mine, to historicise it is to point for the need for a new theory of the city. And I'll just conclude by running you through a few more of these photographs. So here we have, I'll, I'll do that again, Iwan Barn. And I want to juxtapose this with some photographs included in the 1976 publication, uh, The Architect as Developer. 
So we see in some ways uh, the way in which this work has become historical has in some ways become banal, but is being recuperated and reapproached. And I, as I would argue, that recuperation and reapproach necessitates a new kind of theory of the city that tries to reason what was really beginning to emerge at this point in time. This one I particularly like from 76 and from 2016. And there's something which I'm yet to kind of get to grips with in that, in that difference. And I'll leave you with this image. I'm sorry I don't have more of them. This is the work of Preston Scott Cohen's recent studio at Harvard published in the book, which, uh, as I say, is a kind of morphogenesis uh, of uh, the, the sort of elements of Portman's architecture. Uh, so the digital techniques uh, are now kind of using a new or different kind of material that I think um, gives credence to what Arthur Drexler was theorising in 1979 as a kind of proliferation of tendencies through the work of architects. And I think all of this combined, this sort of re-evaluation of Portman in my work uh, and in the work of others significantly here at the GSD, uh, requires us, I think, to have a new theory of the city, uh, one which I hope maybe I can come back and talk about in about four or five years' time. So I'll leave it there. Thank you very much. This has been Buildings on Air on Lumpen Radio. Buildings on Air is a production of Lumpen Radio. Hosted by Kiefer Dunn. Produced by Logan Bay and Jamie Trecker. Visit us on the web at buildingsonair.live. If you want us to answer your questions about buildings on the air, send them via Twitter at BLDGS on air or via email at buildingsonair at gmail.com. This show is also available as a podcast on iTunes.